0: Hi listener. Just before we get into this month's episode, I'd like to give you a quick content warning. Both the short story Final Reward and our discussion of it do mention suicide. We don't go into a lot of detail and it's not a big part of the story, but we do talk about it. So go easy
1: whether you're an actor or a writer mm. or a singer
0: or a podcaster. Or a well pod- oh, yes,
1: <laughs> I can tell by your tormented faces that uh Your life is but dust and ashes and the only happiness is bringing the word of Terry Pratchett to the world.
0: i'm ben mckenzie welcome to pratchett the monthly terry pratchett book club podcast each month we discuss one of terry pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest
2: this month we're reading final reward or all good doggers go
0: to kevin <laughs> oh no. and our retu- i was not ready for that and our returning <laughs> guest is writer penelope love welcome penny
1: hi hello to you both i don't know that i was ready for that either
2: No,
0: who who could be? I'm so sorry to have done that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But how delightful to have you back on the show. It's been about a year. What have you been up to since we saw you last?
1: Well, you know, this and that. We've been not doing a lot of writing, but as we've all been through COVID and um, the the things beyond, Mm. we've all been trying to get by. And I think we've all been reading, escaping into a lot of um, fun fiction as opposed to grim fiction. I've certainly hmm. gone back to my treasure trove of Edwardian children's fiction where saintly golden-haired children redeem the adults around them and um <laughs> nothing will beat that kind of thing. The Pollyanna, Rebecca oh, of yes. Sunnybrook Farm, I forget the name of one where the saintly child plays a violin and uh, redeems <laughs> the crusty old farmer. Um So I can recommend that if people are looking for some escapism. (laughs) Is that
0: the main variation, what talents the golden-haired children have? Yes.
1: Generally, about chapter 15 or 16, they have a life-threatening disease. But recover Mm -hmm. generally, you know, (laughs) thanks to the love of those around them.
0: (laughs) Transformed by their experience, no doubt, in some way. That's right. right. (laughs)
1: Little Lord Fauntleroy. Little Lord Fauntleroy is the place to start.
0: (laughs) Uh Do you know, I'm not sure I've ever read it.
1: Uh, look, I certainly haven't It's it's available on um, Gutenberg Press, everybody And A Secret Garden, oh, yes. you may have read Oh, yes And of course, yes. this is all fiction I think Terry Pratchett would have been familiar with Because every now and then you see uh, some tropes of that appear in his work But
0: <laughs> Yes, yes, I think so The children's fiction that I think he most touches on There's a bit of Just William in some of his mm-hmm. writing mm. And a bit of Tom Brown's School Days it, There's a quite deliberate parody of that uh, a couple of times that's right. So there's a, yeah, there's some of those things.
1: I do love Just William. And uh, George MacDonald Fraser, of course, wrote the Flashman series, which is takes the bully from Tom Brown's school days and makes him the hero.
2: Huh.
1: I like the karate kid. Though, so, um, anti hero is perhaps the word I would use. I know Flashman runs quivering through every single battle in the uh, mid Victorian uh, period, um, and somehow manages to cheat his way to victory, uh, pretty much every time. And. <laughs>
0: He survived for like some phenomenally long time like he he gets all the way into the, like the late 20th century or not, maybe not the late 20th century but the mid 20th century that's at right. some point
1: and and george MacDonald fraser in fact could be a bit of a model for dogger because um he's got that very much that uh, slightly cynical um attitude that i think dogger uh, sorry I, we haven't got talking about the story yet i should
0: <laughs> no but that's all right it's, it's good <laughs> everything to, it's is good. we're already thinking about yeah. it so i think we should get into it because we are here to discuss Final Reward, which is a story Pratchett wrote, uh, which was first published in 1988. And before we get on to the story, let's start the way we do with our short story episodes and read Pratchett's notes from the collection, a blink of the screen. I've tinkered with it since, and I can see it needs further tinkering. Once or twice, I've thought about extending it into a novel and then thought better of it. But I've always had a soft spot for this story. That's it. That's all he wrote. (laughs) I didn't have much to say about it apart from, I like this one, and I fiddled with it. Um It was first published in a magazine I hadn't heard of until now, which is weird because I am a little bit of a student of, you know, sort of the history of role-playing. But it was first published in a magazine called GM, the Independent Fantasy Role-Playing Magazine. Uh, and as I found out when I researched this, in its second ever issue- <laughs> Is where this story appeared. So, I think Pratchett clearly was- he was into the subject matter. He must have known the editorial team somehow, I think, for them to get in touch with him and get them- get him in their That's second issue ever. <laughs> yeah, big get. And uh, and he, he did come back to the magazine. This was the other fun thing I found out. He also had a little contribution in their 11th issue where someone else wrote a whole scenario for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons set in the Discworld. World. Um And then he wrote a page worth of response to what they'd written, which when I read it was slightly disappointing because it was mostly gags from Discworld books. Like it wasn't mostly original stuff. although well, there's one or two little things in there, but he thought it was quite good. And there is a map of Ankh-Morpork in that scenario. And Pratchett mentions at the time that's the first map of Ankh-Morpork he's ever seen. Huh. And it does predate the officially published one by about four years. So that was quite interesting. So clearly he had a bit of an in with these folks and had a bit of fun writing this story, which is the kind of thing you probably expect to see published in a role-playing game magazine, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, it's, all, it's it's very post-deconstructionalist, isn't it? It's all about what happens when a fantasy character appears in your life. It addresses that very deep anxiety I think writers have that their character would be more popular and a better person than they are. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Um, Absolutely. Uh,
1: so, yes, when Burden comes back into the real world, you get the feeling he's going to cope with it better than Dogger has. <laughs> you
0: know? mm. We meet Dogger first, who's mm. the main character of this story. Who? I, it took me a while. I had to read it twice until I realised he does get a first name. Kevin Dogger. It's not the sort of name you often see on a front cover of a novel, <laughs> is it?
2: No, but, I mean, I had a lot of fun um, having a look at these names being like, Are they anagrams? Are they things? And all I could come up with for Dogger is that backwards it is reg god, like regular god. So I thought maybe that's deliberate considering the context in which he (laughs) is in this story because he's just like a regular guy, but to this guy he's like god, he's the maker, he's the creator. So I feel like that's not a coincidence, or maybe it is. And then I Mm. quite enjoyed that Erdan, his creation, basically it's danger missing a G and flipped around but Dogger has two G's so he's got like one to spare so that kind of to me I was like is that about their connection to one another and it's a danger if they come together and that's why they must spoilers not ever exist too long in the same world but maybe I'm getting too English essay about this maybe I'm having too much of a crossword attitude but I spent a little bit too long on their names.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying this. It's, I feel like I'm on an episode of, uh, letters and numbers right now.
1: Well, the joke that dog is God backwards is actually a very old one. So it could be right. Mm. And dogger is also very similar to danger. So they could both have names and mm. variants of danger as of somebody mm. desperately trying to think of two fairly stupid names for his characters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, you're in agreement, the two of you, but
1: together they create danger. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm.
0: <laughs> Cause they are like, parts of a whole Mm. it does seem that way doesn't it Mm. but i mean we this story kind of gets right into it because the first thing that happens is dogger is saying i must have gone mad this can't be right Mm. and then he starts thinking about the night before when he's had an argument with his girlfriend nikki Uh, i i don't know how much break up dissecting (laughs) this relationship but clearly they have nothing in common and they shouldn't be together (laughs) like it's nonsense uh, and he's got nothing but disrespect for all her friends and the things that she thinks are important, you know. She's got all these mm. sort of hippie and alternate lifestyle friends, clearly, who are vegetarians and, and so on. And he's just making jokes about women wearing dungarees and how anti nuclear stickers are not useful in any way and you like, I don't like you <laughs> I don't mm. I do not like you, Kevin Dogger. This story does have a footnote, which was mm. which was fun, considering it's so short. Yeah. About Yen Buddhists, <laughs> which is like a Zen Buddhist, <laughs> but with a bigger begging bowl. Um, I don't know that Zen Buddhists do have begging bowls, but it is a it is a funny play on words. Mm. But yes, it's it's morning. He's gotten up, presumably to go and get the newspaper and maybe the- 7am. Pretty early. Uh, it's, it's early. But well, I mean, look, Erda and the Barbarian is not going to knock on your door. <laughs> At, like, a respectful time. He's going to get in as soon as the sun comes up, right?
3: <laughs> hmm.
0: But, yes, he's opened the door and standing on his doorstep is the main character from his books. I mean, look, there's pretty thin plot, so I think we can get the plot out of the way pretty yeah. quickly and then talk about the specific parts of the writing. But the- this character turns up on his doorstep. It's Erdan the Barbarian because after he's had this argument with his girlfriend, Nikki, she has derided his stories Talking about the fact that he's written this sort of male, you know, stereotypical male power fantasy of this big, powerful barbarian and it's gross and might as well be a Rambo movie. And he's come home and like in a fit of peak gone, all right, I'll show you and like killed him off at the end of the book he was just finishing. Mm. And now he's turned up Mm? to meet his maker, as he (laughs) says. Uh, which he has. Along
1: with his sword. Okay. Oh, yes, Skung, the sword of the ice gods. Yes. <laughs> Another sword that must have taken <laughs> hours of thought before he came up with the name.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and he's described it so many times, but not one more time.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's got a real. There's a really sort of genre of Pratchett's sword names. Mm-hmm. Like the other talking sword that appears in the Discord novels is called Kring. Okay. And it's got a, a very different attitude to Skung. Skung's a bit more traditional. Elric and Stormbreaker. Stormbreaker, yeah, it's very like yes. I will kill people and drink their blood in order to fuel your power, and
2: yeah. But he's real like I am Groot about it. Yes. Like he just has the same phrase, but he says it in different <laughs> ways.
1: Yes, there's. Oh, I will drink. <laughs> I want to drink his blood too. Said Scum. You know, he's just he's just getting on with his day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he says it
2: conversationally. Yes.
1: <laughs> what I like in, in a way with Erdan is that when he turns up, he's not really here, but then he slowly comes into existence. So it's as though by the effort mm-hmm. of trying to kill him, he's a, the author's attempt to kill his creation has actually made it more real by drawing him into his world. Mm. Yeah. He was standing patiently next to the milk. There you go. <laughs> Good way to start. Yeah. yeah and they describe
2: yeah. the milk and then they describe him. And that is lovely. That's nice. <laughs>
3: That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. And he, I mean, at first he's sort of like, oh, maybe it's a, you know, someone cosplaying, but then, although he doesn't use that word because it wasn't really coined, I don't know, in yeah. 1988, yes. but uh, yeah, he thinks he's a fan who's dressed up, but then he realised, no, this guy's for real. <laughs> he's yeah. too big. He's too authentic.
2: So he invites him in, which mm. doesn't seem like a great idea,
0: but I mean, what else would you do in that scenario? Yeah. I mean, because he's not, he's not threatening him or anything. He just says, I've come to meet my maker and lets him mm. in. And then he says, you know, I'm, I'm here for my final reward, and you're like, what? Yeah.
1: What does that mean? It is said that those who die in combat will feast and crowds in your hall forever. Oh, my hall! Yeah. <laughs> what with the telephone <laughs> and coat rack, it was already pretty crowded. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, maybe you should come into the the main the lounge room instead. You can carouse our house of tofu, it's okay. That's right.
1: But it's also, <laughs> it's the juxtaposition between the reality of the, the barbarian warriors, Conan-like figure, mm. striding the, the ice planes, uh, and, and your actual semi-detached scene. In- Whereas it? Is it in London? I forget.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think he mentions the Northern Line, so I think he's on, you know, sort of the northern outskirts of London. Mind somewhere. you
1: if you're the author of a best selling um series of fantasy novels, I think it's about seventeen, weren't there? I think it was mentioned and Why are you not mm-hmm. living in a slightly bigger house? <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> he's got lots of money. He's he says that early on
0: as well, so Yeah, it hasn't made him happy though.
1: What, what's his agent doing?
0: Yeah, what's he What's going on here? <laughs> uh, I mean, this might be Franch's own experience coming to the fore. Because at, <laughs> at, at this point, in 1988, he has not made- He's made some money, but he's not yet, you know, wealthy off the back of Discworld. I think mm-hmm. it's its working out for him. It's a job because the next year, he the thing that he contributes alongside the role-playing scenario in that later issue of this same <laughs> magazine is an extract from Pyramids before it comes out. So, this is still mm-hmm. fairly early on,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but he's doing all right. But maybe he's not, he's not rich. Like, he's got a house. He can, he can pay the bills, but he's hes not a rich man yet. Mm, mm. Um, but he's working on it. He's getting there. He's already famous. And maybe that's Dogger's experience. You know, he's sold 17 of these books, but they're not, you know, it's enough to keep things going. But he's not making a million bucks off each one. And I, I mean, look, you know, I've never published a book. I don't know what kind of money you expect to make on one that <laughs> does well.
1: Well, but also you get the feeling he's actually a bit sick of the character, which is why he decides mm. to kill him off. Also, in a way, you kind of feel, I'm sorry, I've forgotten his girlfriend's name. Oh, Nikki. Nikki. You kind yeah. of do feel Nikki, you can just see her. She's this uh, lovely girl who's a bit sorry for him. I don't know. She's, but she's getting sick of his. Yeah. Whenever he gets yeah. a, few drunk, a, bit, a few drinks, a few drinks in him, he does start mouthing off about woman who don't shave their legs or something and you know <laughs> oh,
2: yeah yeah he did say pint of wine A which of wine. was an amazing
3: phrase
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah he does he kind of the one kind of slightly redeeming thing he says which i it doesn't really redeem him but he does say at one point that he starts speaking in defense of people that he realizes when he's sober he probably wouldn't like any more than she does and you're like okay you you are but that's in some ways that's worse. Like he doesn't really believe all these things, but he feels like he has to take an anti position because for whatever reason, I don't know. Who who knows? Just to play devil's advocate. <laughs> There's a lot of toxic masculinity going on in, in Kevin Docker, mm. I think.
1: <laughs> yes, and but that's why it's coming out in Erdan. I and mean, the problem is when Erdan turns up he's actually rapidly evolving as the rest of this conversation going to show into something else.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah. 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 And I, I really liked this sort of a line that sets that up, which uh, doesn't happen until a bit later. Because the first things that happen is he just starts becoming a bit more solid. They go shopping
3: together.
0: <laughs> <It's
2: right. laughs> um, we, the man is
0: like, yeah, I've got all the things I want. I've got some meat. I've got a thing. I found a woman in the, and I put her in there. And you're like, okay, that's not okay. <laughs> Hi, with my Tara. name is Tracy. How may <laughs> I help you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And she she has the the pricing, the pricing gun, gun and she like labels his nose ninety eight p. That sorry.
0: was pretty funny. Uh, so he he's clearly able to affect the world around him, but he's still invisible to most people. Um, Tardis. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Dogger tries talking to someone. He tries talking to his agent or his publisher about this or his editor. I, I can't think remember it's his who agent, was, but yeah, his yeah. agent. Yeah. Yes. And the agent's like, look, just take a break, mate. Like, it's the strain. Oh, yeah. yeah. Breaking um, some tablets. When they come back home, though, from the shopping, uh, he sort of starts domesticating <laughs> Erdan, teaching him what soap is, <laughs> using references from the books to explain things. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he is kind of like his god. He knows everything that Erdan's done. So, he kind of uses that as a reference to try and make that work.
2: Oh, that yes. Neighbours line hits different now that Neighbours is cancelled, though. It's like, this is so, not like Neighbours, oh. like, this one is useful. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> that's, that's,
1: that's just yeah, cool. That's we'll yes. I was just going to say, you remember when I put you in the Seraglio, the Emir of the White Mountain? I'm pretty certain you had a wash and a shave then. So this is just like then. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like that. But then he's like, well, where are all the concubines or whatever? <laughs> he's like, no, mm. no, it's not like that.
1: Oh, the Huris, even better, the Huris. Mm. Oh,
0: yeah. Now, this is a phrase. This is a word I've heard, but I don't. What does that mean?
2: Uh, it's it's a virginal maiden, specifically from Muslim culture. I think oh, the ones who will right.
1: wait upon you in in paradise. But in this context, oh. yes, I think sexy young ladies wearing not a lot who are clearly going to wash and shave you in the fancy mm. land. But alas, not mm. in the um, the bed uh, Sorry, the um, semi-detached <laughs> in the
2: laboratory. <laughs> Too small to have a bath in. <laughs> That's
1: right.
0: Yeah, it does sound exactly like the sort of thing Dogger would write about, yes. (laughs) Even at this point, though, you know, when they're he's sort of, you know, becoming a bit more used to living in the the real world and he's seeing it through this lens of, oh, this is great. And he's, like, amazed by the refrigerator. <laughs> he's like, you've captured winter in a box. This was incredible. Uh, I thought that was great. So he's quite happy, even though it's not what he expected. Yeah. It's still pretty great. It's better than having to, you know, schlep around on the tundra.
1: Go out and hunt the mammoth yourself. I think the other thing is actually the real emotional relationship in this book, in this story, is, of course, between the writer and his creation and how that changes. Mm-hmm. And um, he um he's absolutely being the guy, Urdan's dad. Dogger does just step in and say, oh, gosh, I'm going to see you need a bit of help in the world. And eventually he has to take – he kind of realises the final step he needs to take, which uh, we will get to in yeah. a bit. But And so I think in a way he's being very – Self-sacrificing as, as as you do. What we do as writers is you start writing. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this as well. You start writing, but and if you do it well, though, the writer that you're eventually just running after the character, writing down what they're saying, you know. <laughs> and yeah. so this is just <laughs> this is just a literal embodiment of that.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh. Um, I do like along the way too, as he refers to the various books mm-hmm. uh, in order to sort of make reference to things that erdan will understand we get the titles of some of them uh, which makes them sound like they're sort of maybe they're a little bit Discworldy, like 'cause like because there's erdan and the serpent of the rim indicating maybe he lives on a flat world but- there's several in there mm. <laughs> erdan and the top of the world like they're not they're kind of does what it says on the tin sort of fantasy titles aren't they it's got this guy in it and this is what he's doing <laughs> He's fighting a serpent, he's going north.
1: It's all you need to know, yeah, Tarzan and the <laughs> this, that, and the other, you know.
0: Although, I will note, top of the world and serpent of the rim don't seem to entirely agree because one of them suggests a flat world, <laughs> one of them suggests maybe a globe. I don't know, unless he's going the top M- of a maybe mountain. just a
2: big mountain on a disc,
0: <laughs> yeah, like on the disc world again,
2: <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, but like the whole thing but- is a mountain. Big, round mountain with a rim and a, and mm. a peak. I don't know how geography yep. works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who does? I mean, once it's a fantasy world, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, get, they get to a point where, and I think, look, it's not entirely clear how much time passes, but it's not long. Like, it's maybe a couple of days at most. They get maybe to the house of tofu.
1: Time. They come back again.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's about it, really. Yeah. I mean, there's, and yeah. there's kind of a day in between.
1: But in that time, he also does say, Erden is how I cope with the world, I just never realised it myself, whereas Nikki did realise it, and that is a way. Mm. um, If you actually can't Mm. deal with the world, um, retreating behind a typewriter and creating a macho character who can, it's it's not an effective way of dealing with the real world, but it'll get you by.
0: Yeah. And he uh and as they're going they're going to go to the house of tofu he's like we well, can't wear a loincloth <laughs> outside. <laughs> Why not? So uh I'm going to try and get you some clothes. You're not going to fit into any of my clothes cuz you're massive. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, what I'll do is I'll write you a new set of clothes. And he sort of, and this is where he sort of realizes the magic, whatever it is, is still kind of that's working. Right. So he right. he writes him. Oh yeah, he's in a suit. I don't. It's not clear where he put the suit. Like where did he did he edit that into the book or did he just write a passage on its own? I'm not.
2: It's like a store under the avalanche that he goes into. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he just found it there.
1: I think he's just, it's just like he's writing it because that's what he says about that. This is the blinking cursor. The black screen, because when he was writing in 1988, it would have been a black or a blue screen. wouldn't do it on the monitor. Mm -hmm. And then there was light. It's the words you type. You are the God that creates the world. And there's Mm -hmm. that point where he wants, oh, silly me, a big lad like you wouldn't have died in the avalanche, he says, pulling the manuscript towards him. I'll just write you back in, at which point Erden just goes, a hand like iron closed over his wrist. Gently but firmly. Erdan does not want to be written back into that world. He likes it here. Yes. He's going to stay. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, I quite liked yeah. that because he's, he's aware of what, even if he doesn't understand at that point all of the mechanics of what's happened, he, he gets that, you know, this could happen possibly. Yes. Mm. And, yeah, and as they're on their way to the, the House of Tofu, <laughs> terrible name for a restaurant, Uh, well, maybe not. I mean, I would go to a House of Tofu. I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, <laughs> it would not, suit yeah. me. Delicious.
1: <laughs> Who is tofu? <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, sorry. No. And, of course, Skung is being made to be left behind because... Oh, yeah. Skung was a sort behind of his... few words, and none of them would go down well in a whole food restaurant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, they sort of leave him behind the sofa, which is... I think he's know, probably still place.
1: there now. I mean- <laughs>
2: Yeah. I was wondering where he ended up.
1: Is that the last we see of him? We'll have to find out. (laughs) We'll
0: find out. Uh, But, yeah, as they're on the way, he's, like, slowly evolved. Like, his suit becomes proper. He kind of assumes... Still large, but more normal human, large human proportions yeah. rather than outlandish. <laughs> uh, and his hair kind of assembles itself, I think. There's a reference to that. And um Dog kind of realises, oh, he's kind of fitting in. And there's this sort of nice line where he says, this is how it works with heroes. You put them in any situation and they adapt to fit in, which is something he realises he himself is not capable of, or at least doesn't feel capable of. Mm. And he also realises- There's no going back now. He's here. He Mm. belongs here. And you know what? We're going to go in there. And it's sort of like, I like how uh, in a lot of fantasy stories that are set in the real world where there's this sort of magical realism or urban fantasy, there's often a really long sort of. In, in Hero's Journey terms, denial of the call. Like there's often a very long period where the protagonist just refuses to believe the magic is happening or that the magic is real. Mm. And that always annoys me because I'm like, I know what kind of book I'm reading. (laughs) Can the, can the main character get on board, please? (laughs) Um, But that doesn't happen here Like, you know, there's there's a little bit of resistance And then Dog is like, okay And then not only does he realise what's happening He sees the writing on the wall He's the one who realises where it's going Mm. And I quite liked that about this
1: Because you're a writer You were always going to see the writing on the wall Because that's words (laughs) Words is your thing Words is the creation Words is the tool (laughs) you know. <laughs> yeah, and you'd
0: hope that a fantasy writer would have the imagination to see how this was going to work out as well, wouldn't you? That's right. And yeah. it seems that he does because he can kind of see what's going to happen is we're going to go in here, we're going to sit down with Nikki. you and her are going to hit it off. You know, I don't think I want to be there for that. And also I've had an idea. So he just says, look, here's the key to my house in case you need it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going home or I've got to go and do something. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say he's going home and he, he leaves. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he's right. There's a, there's, there's also a nice nod that like Erdan is becoming enmeshed in our world because as he leaves, he says, Don't worry, I won't send you back to Shimra, which is the name of the place he's from, which is kind of a nice like nod to uh, Conan, who's from Samaria, and also, you know, classical mythology. But but Erdan just says, Shimra, with a bit of a hint of amusement, indicating he's now thinking, That's not a real place.
1: That's Mm. right. Oh, Also, if you're going to send me back, can I take the television back with me? You know, it's not Yeah, (laughs) that's right. It gets lonely on the endless tagger between books, you know. Oh, yeah.
0: Which is, now that's interesting too because there he's aware that, okay, there are books and in between I just sit around doing nothing. (laughs) Like (laughs) It's terrible. I'd like something to occupy me, please. Mm. But, yeah, Dogger goes home and he starts writing something on the word processor, although at this point, we don't know what, mm-hmm. um, but he gets right into it and he writes something and the ideas begin to crystallize, is the phrase in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometime later, as we get to the end, Erdan and Nikki come back to Dogger's house together and she's like, Oh, look, this is typical him. He's always, he's just not got his shit together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he doesn't seem to be there. And Erdan immediately, as he comes in, sees there's a printout, a fresh thing on the printer. He's looking at it going, hmm. And he just just picks up a pencil, starts editing the writing that's there. And while it is never said, and I I like how it's, you know, Pratchett's just like you know what's happened. I don't need to tell you. But it's clear that Kevin has written himself into the world of his fantasy books. Mm. And Erdan is now giving it a slight edit, tightening it up thinking about things he might need. I
1: love that. He's just gone out into the prairie without a coat. I will give him a warm 30 coat. He'll freeze to death.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll put these guys, the scry- what do they call the scrylings yes. or something in there? Yeah, They're all 20- right. Yeah. I've hung out with them before.
1: And, and they like mad people. <laughs> but I just mm. want the, the key there, I think, is the word processor kicked into life. The monitor was out form and void and darkness was upon the screen, with, of course, the exception of the beckoning flicker of the cursor, which is the title of the collection. And that, of course, is a mm. little take on the start of the Bible. So, you know, yes. the word was God and, and the darkness and then God spoke and there was light. So it's that creation moment. And also, it's for me, I thought that was very amusing because that's the, the horror of the blank page, you know, <laughs> that writers have when you've got to fill it.
0: Yeah. We talk about that in the workshops we do with kids when we're getting them to write on paper. And yeah. one of the solutions we give them is just do a scribble in the corner. Now it's not blank. It's just scrap paper. You can do whatever you want on it now. There's no computer equivalent, really, of that.
1: You've just got to start writing, people. It's going to be crap, but that's okay. You'll just yeah. get there. <laughs> but as, it's really as hard. Pratchett himself mm.
0: said, and this quote has been doing the rounds a little bit recently. The first draft is just you telling yourself the story, mm, mm, which I thought mm. was quite good that's advice. True.
1: Who was? I don't, I don't think it was Ernest Hemingway. It was some modern American writer. Writing is quite easy. All you just get out the typewriter and bleed. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's, I mean, that's interesting because that's how Pratchett talks about short stories. He says in the introduction to many of the stories in this book mm. that they cost him blood. Like, really? he finds it much easier to write a novel than something really short.
1: Because when you're trying to write jokes, you often have to quite write long to build up the in-joke, which then becomes funny and funnier each time. So, actually, writing mm. stuff funny, short funny, is very hard. And Terry Pratchett, again, mm. is going back to people like P.G. Woodhouse – who said the same thing? PG Woodhouse said it's really hard to make writing look so effortless. You've got to get yeah. onto that plane of the relentlessly silly but but amiable, uh, which I think both Terry Pratchett and PG Woodhouse inhabit. Um, mm. And but and PG Woodhouse, um, he wrote a very good biography called *Performing Flea*, um, which probably talked about how he felt about his his writing career. But he just sometimes he would write thirty or forty thousand words and then just throw it away because it was wrong and I'm sure Terry hmm. Pratchett wow. had probably had a lot of stuff in his in-, in his rubbish basket that we'd quite like to go and have a look at now, but there you are.
0: Oh, yeah, but we can't because he had it destroyed by a steamroller. <laughs> <laughs> that was in his will. I don't know if we've mentioned that in the podcast for a while, but in his will, his hard drives with all his unfinished stories were to be destroyed by an old-fashioned, actual steam-powered steamroller, um, and they did it a few months after he died, and it was... Kind of amazing.
1: That's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. I'm sad for not being able to read it,
0: but. <laughs> <laughs> mm.
1: There's a reason why that stuff was left on the hard drive and was not taken out, and uh, we they just respect their wishes.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Unlike Kafka, who told his best friend as he lay dying to burn all his stuff when he died, and the friends didn't. No, he published it. So thank you. Oh. Now we have to read things like Metamorphosis and... Um... <laughs>
0: Sometimes it works out, <laughs> like uh, like those unpublished manuscripts of Jules Verne's that like his great grandkids found in a safe at, at some point.
1: I don't think they did. I think I'm not like what Christopher Tolkien, who kept finding more and more stuff of granddad's hidden mm. in a vault in the attic. I think you pretend you find them and you've got somebody <laughs> right. to write them yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, now oh, you oh, this is shattering a lot of my illusions here, Penny. I'm going to be investigating. Paris in the 20th century, it's (laughs) going to make me very sad, I feel.
2: No. I was was reading this Shirley Jackson collection recently and I was like, why am I hating these when I normally love her stuff? And it turned out it was a bunch that had been collected posthumously that hadn't been polished up or finished and hadn't been published. And I was like, Mm. oh, this shouldn't have been published. And it's kind Mm. of... Crap. If I hadn't read the introduction, that I wouldn't have known this. I'd have just thought this was a mediocre work by her that she was happy to send out in the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, mm. Mm.
0: yeah. Well, this, this collection's interesting too. Like a blink of the screen because there's only one story in it that hadn't already been published somewhere else. Mm. So it's all stuff that had already seen the light of day. And the only one that hadn't until immediately before this book was published was uh, the high megas, which we talked about quite recently, which had just never been published until it. He picked up the idea again and turned it into some novels. So, yeah, it's there was some discussion about this because one of the last things that were published of Pratchett's were these collections of his very, very early children's stories mm. from back when he was like 17 to 25, when he was writing them for a local newspaper. And they're a lot of fun, but he, he was a writer who really hung on to an idea that he liked and would reuse it or find a new way to recycle it into something better or bigger. Mm. And so some of those stories form the basis or, or clearly the origins of ideas that end up as novels, either in the Discworld series or outside of that. He was, though, happy for those to be republished and indeed tinkered with them a little bit in the first volume or two that were published before his death. Not quite sure if he'd done that with all of them. I'd have to look that up because there, there were a couple of them published after he died. But yeah, it's interesting that he would go back and look at that and it, and also how embarrassed he is of some of his early stuff. There's that introduction to one of his very early stories. I think the first thing he ever had published, which is the one about the advertising salesman who gets a job from the devil. And, uh, he's just in the introduction to it. He says, if I stick fingers, my fingers in, in my, my ears, ears. I can't hear you reading this. And I'll just go. No, 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 no. And you're like, okay, I get it.
1: There's a Ram- Ramsey Campbell is a so very well known. British horror writer, and there's a short story he wrote when he was still a teenager uh, which contains the immortal – which I thought of that when looking at the Terry Pratchett story. It contains the immortal line, and then the door burst open and the aforementioned skeleton rushed into the room. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, wow. I,
2: I knew that in a cross-stitch, like really large. On my wall.
1: <laughs> We've all had it. And amazing. yet, amazing. Yeah, he went on to become a great writer, so... <laughs>
2: Actually, that I mean, I don't think I could write something that amazing if I wanted.
3: To.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does sound like something you'd write now as as an example of, of a fictional writer <laughs> who's uh, who's terrible. Um, but look, we should get let's get to the end of the story because I want to go back and look mm. at some of the lines in it in, in a bit more detail. But the end of the story is that Nikki and Erdan are talking about what's maybe happened to Dogger. Where is he? Erdan's making these little edits he's like, oh, you write it writer too? And he sort of pauses and thinks about it for a second. And he's like, I'm just breaking into it. (laughs) And uh, she kind of admits that maybe she doesn't like Kevin that much. Although that's not what she says, but it's clearly what she's saying, if you know what I mean.
1: Break up. I I mean, I quite like Kevin. You know, she says I quite like him. I think they're just moving into the relationship and she's feeling a bit embarrassed because- It's a bit
0: quick.
1: (laughs) But they were already breaking up. Yeah, in his house. But they were Mm. already breaking up, you know. (laughs) They should have been if
0: they weren't. Yeah, I agree with you both. Um, But, yeah, uh, but this is where the story takes a bit of a turn uh, because she's looking out the window and she's like, oh, there's a lot of blue lights down on the railway line. Clearly police cars um, and some sort of commotion and people milling about. And uh, Erland just sort of changes the name of the story, and and then the last thing he edits in. I, I like this touch because <laughs> he added book one in the Chronicles of Kevin the Bard Singer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, look, this ending—we're going to. There was a question about this, but I think we're just going to talk about it here. I did not find this ambiguous. Like, it's clearly implying that Kevin felt in order for him to make the transition, he needed to die, just as Erdan needed to die to come into the real world. So, he has written himself into this story and then gone and thrown himself in front of a train, which is kind of, like, awful, but seems to clearly be what is being implied here. Yeah, Am I am I wrong?
2: No, you're not wrong. Um That does seem to be what Swimming Flight... And they sort of... Th- he dots the trains throughout the whole story foreshadowing it. Like, he's like, don't try mm. and fight a train. He talks about the the noise of it throughout. So the trains are set up very clearly as a whole thing. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's... Especially a little bit ambiguous because he doesn't straight up say it because he just sort of leaves the yeah. clues there for you to figure it out. But it seems like it's not... I don't think there's no argument that that's not what happened.
1: I think he touches on it very lightly because it's not a very hilarious thing to put in what is otherwise a very light, funny novel. Mm-hmm. But he does, once you accept that you can write something into reality and he does do that, he says, um, Kimmerer already existed in a little bubble of fractal reality created by these ten fingers, uh, which is lovely. It's that creation of the author for his world. So I think he yeah. just realises that I'm writing this, then – Perhaps even this world is almost being written by somebody else, you know. So (laughs) if you can do that. But, yes, because he had to kill off poor old Urdan in in that avalanche for Urdan to turn up. So he's just, I think, decided to do the same thing. But we don't have to worry too much about that. The fact is the mechanism has happened and the swap has occurred. He's gone off to Kevin the you know in another 27 books as written by Urdan. (laughs) who we can assume is going to probably change his name or to Ernest or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I have to admit, I, while it is subtle, I did find it a bit jarring because I'm like, oh, but this is still meant to be kind of a version of the real world. So there's there's a lot of things that I think about now that I think about that happening that mm-hmm. I don't think about when a barbarian on a fantasy world dies in an avalanche. But also when, yeah. you, when a barbarian in a fantasy world dies in an avalanche, He's just gone. Like there's there's probably nobody comes across his body until 20 years later when he's, you know, been eaten by things mostly. Whereas this is like, yeah, anyway, well, yeah, let's not dwell on it, but it does seem, it just seemed a bit of a nasty end and I was expecting something a bit gentler.
1: I think that's why he's saying he needs to fiddle with it a bit more. It's, you know, and he said it still needs hmm. work, but at the same time, Writing people in and out of worlds I think is a much better technique and perhaps if he was going to work on it any further, he would do it that way. But it's also a very mm. difficult conceit to carry, which is why it is done very seldom. I, I only know of one other thing where, and that's not even that, it's, it's Stephen King, the dark half, who wrote mm. a novel. But in that case it was more like when he started writing as Richard Backman, mm. um and he eventually got, very, got mm. outed, some sharp-eyed librarian realised that all the dedications in Richard Backman's book were people who Stephen King knew. Uh, and after that experience wow, that- of having this alter ego, he wrote The Dark Half, which is about a – the guy has a – he has a takes on a pseudonym to write on the – I think it's exactly reflecting on that experience, a pseudonym to write on the novels, but that pseudonym person comes to life and he's a kind of a serial killer because oh. Stephen King is a horror writer. But yeah,
3: right.
1: that's the only one I'm aware of where somebody's kind of taking that kind of fict- fictive shift between reality and the fantasy um, and then a few mm. other things like, I think, Inkart, But I haven't read Inkart either. And I think it's because it's very difficult to maintain that degree of separation, especially as, I mean, like, again, sorry, looking at Edwardian fantasy novels, children's novels, terrible death rate in all of those. People's parents are being knocked off left, right and centre. Small children die in the snow. It's just awful. We would never it'd be incredibly grim and tragic if it was in real life. We know it's not because it's a step away. And that's the jarring note in this story, I think, that, suddenly the death is real.
2: Hmm. I thought there was quite a dark thread throughout the whole story, actually, because, I mean, Dogger is very unlikable, I think, and I don't think he likes himself, and that comes across quite clearly. Like, even from the line that Ben pointed out, he's like, in the light of day, he wouldn't argue for these people that he doesn't actually like. He's picking fights with his girlfriend. He even tries to be a bit better to suit what he thinks she wants, like he starts taking the guardian, but then he makes snide comments about that and all kinds of stuff. And towards the end, like, cause he, cause when he's walking towards um house of tofu or tofu's house or whatnot, he has that realization and says to Erdan it's like, I'm just saying a chap has only got so much of it and I gave mine to you. And so then there was also that line about how Erdan is a hero and heroes adapt to their environment. So I was like, okay, so Erdan is heroic. But then at the end, I didn't quite understand why he'd be suddenly good at writing, like because that doesn't fit into the traditional hero model because he was originally like, oh, he's going to be off saving the whales. He's going to be doing the heroic things of this world. So I had to sit and think with it a bit. I read it again, and I thought for a bit more. And to me, and maybe it's an obvious thing and not a revelation at all. It seems like Erdan is Dogger or Kevin's aspirational self. So when he's writing his book, he's writing this hyper-masculine figure that gets all the women who never say they're washing their hair and he just sort of kills the hordes with his mighty sword and he's going through that. But then when Erdan makes it through to his world, he also starts fulfilling his aspirations there too. Like he's more the kind of guy that Nikki would like. He's more adjusted. He's more good looking. He's all of those things. He's kind of all of the things that Kevin wants to be and never can be, but feels like he's put them into someone else. So that is quite a dark thread throughout that. Mm. So the death makes sense to me in that way because if you want to read it as a sort, because um, we get a little bit of outside insight into Kevin finally because it's all sort of his perspective until he disappears literally from the story, mm-hmm. and Nikki's saying, "Oh, it's the drink and the smoking. He doesn't look after himself." And so I hadn't gotten that impression of him as like being so bad, like as in, not that smoking drinking is so bad, but the way that she describes it, it seems like he actually doesn't take good care of himself either. So actually, maybe he's not in a good way. Mm-hmm.
1: You're more likely to look after your fictional creation than you are yourself. Uh, Shirley Jackson is actually hmm. a, an example of something. She was actually – the it's, reason Shirley Jackson's work have such power is because she was so anxious, such anxious as a person and had a rather terrible marriage, and it all poured into these uh, terrifying domestic stories where everything goes wrong like The Haunting of Hill House, and um, we've always lived in the castle. People who are great artists I think often have trouble looking after themselves because they put it all into the creation whether you're an actor or a writer mm. or a
0: singer. Or a podcaster. Or a pod, Well, oh, um. yes,
1: I can tell by your tormented faces that uh, your life is but dust and ashes and the only happiness is bringing the word of Terry Pratchett to the world.
0: <laughs> yes, there's a little bit of that. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the whole story. Mm. But I think, yeah, you're right. There's a, there is a sort of a, a slightly dark undercurrent that runs through it, which gives it a bit more Thrill. And maybe that's why he's made Dogger so unlikable. Like, cause he's, he's kind of unambiguously unlikable. Although then mm. again, it was written in 1988. So perhaps Pratchett thought, well, you know, in writing it in 1988, it's for the mainstream audience of a role playing game magazine. Sadly, at the time, he may have been right in thinking, oh, it's probably a bunch of lads. <laughs> and they'll think, yeah, like, we don't want to hang out with people eating tofu and stuff. And you're like, they're role players. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, we're a bunch of nerds. Come on. Um, we're
1: very inclusive. We're, we're all nerds. You know, we are all yeah. nerds, you know. <laughs> but are we all well, Kevin? You know,
0: <laughs> I hope not. I mean, we, we, mm. it's, yeah, th- this is the paradox of, mm. of nerd culture, right? Is that, you know, there's this idea that it's grown out of, people who felt like outsiders and so therefore it should be very inclusive and understanding of anyone who feels like they don't fit in mainstream Mm. society and yet there also has been a consistent thread through it of the same kind of gatekeeping from mostly male participants that you get you know like there's there's always been the equivalent of jocks but for nerds you know (laughs) and i mean i was watching the most recent season of stranger things which i won't spoil for anyone if you haven't caught up with it yet but there's a character introduced right at the start of it who's, like, the head of the Dungeons & Dragons club at the high school, and he's like that. Like, he treats the younger players the same way a jock who's, like, the captain of the footy team, like, treats the new players on his team. You know, he's he's rousting them and telling them what they've got to do, and he's in charge, and he's better than them, um, and he embarrasses them in front of everybody else and picks on them. And I'm like, this is gross. I wouldn't like this if it was a footballer doing it, and I don't like it when it's a nerd Dungeons and Dragons player doing it, you know?
1: It is human nature to try and gatekeep and try and say, I've got the power and you don't. And, in fact, uh, the D&D creation I love most is actually Tripod versus the Dragon, which I don't know you all, yes, but it's a wonderful celebration of what makes role-playing, the getting together with our friends and and hitting things with winty weapons in our minds. Uh, So Tripod versus the Dragon, people, if you... I think it's available on DVD if you're outside
0: Australia. It is. And the, the soundtrack, it's a musical, so the soundtrack is also available digitally. We'll That's have right. a, a link to that in the episode notes because it is great. I am a big fan also.
1: It has a beautiful song about um, how we're all going to be heroes and we're going to pass it on to our children. One day you you too will be a hero, which is just uh, tears me up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It really is. Well, look, that's the story. I'd love to read the original, and I think I will try and find it just because I'm interested to know how Pratchett tinkered with it, as he puts it, (laughs) because it doesn't seem like it would have been radically different when he first wrote it.
2: I have a question. Yeah. When I tried to look up and I couldn't find an answer to, when he's talking about Sherlock Holmes and he's like, what if he turns up damp from the- Richtofen Falls which is obviously not the actual Falls I tried to find out yeah. what Rickton because it's Reichenberg Falls yeah but in the in yeah. this story he calls
0: them Richtofen, the Richtofen falls. falls yeah
2: he might and I-, I tried to look that up and all I can get is the Call of Duty character which is after the time of this so I was like what's it referencing
1: he might just be A, he didn't, he, showing how carefully Terry Pratchett did his research. He might have got wrong. Equally, he may be trying to say this character doesn't do his research. Cause remember, he also looked up if you could survive off 10,000 year old frozen mammoth, realized you couldn't and decided Erdan could anyway. So he yeah. might be talking about his casual relationship with research and the real world.
0: Well, Pratchett was a a diligent researcher. I mean, he didn't always use- I think the the story about the mammoth is indicative. Like, he would research things and know what the truth was, but sometimes decide to do something else. But uh, I think he's showing there that Dogger is not necessarily a respecter of other fiction. That's right. His fantasy Mm -hmm. fiction is important to him, but he's- Yes. Not really concerned about remembering the name of the falls in yes. in the story, but um, Rictofen is the name of the Red Baron, Baron von Richtoffen. Okay, so I assume that's where he's huh. gotten the name from.
1: Oh, sorry, from um, the Rictofen Falls or whatever. Yes, so that's definitely yeah. <laughs> um, definitely dogger going. Oh, it was it was some falls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes is actually quite interesting in this context because uh, Conan Doyle actually had to vigorously guard. His character, people kept trying to write, you know, the further adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The young August Leth wrote to him and said, are you going to write any more Sherlock Holmes adventures? And Conan Doyle said no. So August Leth went off and wrote the adventures of Solar Ponds. There are billions <laughs> of fictional Victorian detectives out there who were trying to rip off Sherlock Holmes. That, and the most, and of course he famously killed him off and then had to bring him back because of audience pressure.
2: Yes. Or because this happened to him.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes Sherlock Holmes showed like
1: up that. as I say. Um, the one I like most is actually, um, Arsène Lupin, who is a very famous mm. French thief, you know, cat burglar. Anyway, yeah. Arsène Lupin had a book where he battled Sherlock Holmes. The French police bring Sherlock Holmes over and he and Arsène have a huge roustabout. And then Conan Doyle's lawyers obviously got in touch with him because every subsequent book he is Herlock Sholmes and his sidekick, <laughs> Dr. Whitson. <laughs>
0: oh, this, there's a, there's a video game series that does much the same thing. The Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney series, I think it is, Mm. has a recurring character who's called Herlock Sholmes (laughs) (laughs) in order to get around that. And it's interesting now, like this has come up several times where there's kind of this thing where the earlier version of Sherlock Holmes is now kind of in the public domain. But the, the later version is not. And when they made the film version of Enola Holmes, the story about Sherlock's much younger sister, they kind of ran foul of that because he, in order to get away with making homes and not, you know, licensing it from the Conan Doyle estate, you have to use that earlier version who can't be warm or friendly at all. <laughs> like, he's got to be the really kind of uh, not good with people, I only care about facts version of the character and not the sort of slightly older Sherlock Holmes who maybe gets along with people a little bit better in the stories. So that, I thought that was quite interesting.
1: It's, it's how, how characters take on a life beyond their creator and how problematic that can be. Mm. which I think this is also talking to, and even more mm. so now in the world of fan fiction and, which has always existed. It's just now a lot more populous. Yeah. The, 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 later Sherlock Holmes stories, I actually, what I like Mr. Holmes, which I assume they credited the estate because it's Sherlock Holmes retired and, um, keeping bees, but developing Alzheimer's. So his brain is uh-huh. going and that's a wonderful story. Um, really um, great turned film. Turned into a great film yeah. as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Was it Ian McKellen? Yeah. Yes, he? it was. He is
0: just. <laughs> Where's oh, Enola oh,
1: Holmes? Oh. Mm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought much the same. <laughs> it was like, eh, well, it was okay, I guess. Uh, Any other bits of the story we want to pull out? Oh, um, there's one thing I wanted
2: to talk about. Again, getting obsessed with the words, because um, the place he's from is called Chimera, which is like a thing that is combined from two parts that don't belong together, which kind of is what they are, and I thought that was, like, a lovely detail.
1: Sure, yes, it's the yes. lion head and the
0: goat head. <laughs> mm. yeah. Um, yeah, and the, sometimes a dragon as well thrown in there. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Pratchett rarely chooses these things by accident. Oh. Uh Although every now and then people will insist that he's doing a riff on a character and you'll see comments from back in the day where he's like, no, I'm just doing like that's an older archetype. I'm not copying this other thing. <laughs> it's not a reference that mm. we're both drawing on this earlier, th- you know, that sort of stuff. But I think that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. That's intentional. Mm.
1: There is a good... There's a good line in, um, Upstart Crow where, um, Shakespeare keeps claiming that phrases are his and his servant has to keep saying that. Master, you've got to stop pretending that this phrase is yours. It's been around for generations. Things come around, you know, and of course the art of the artist is actually to make, put them in a very apt way and put them in a really great context, which that's what the great people do upstart crow being another terrific riff on all kinds of i should have thought of that because of course the characters come out in that the characters from shakespeare's plays occasionally they they show the origin stories of the plays in various amusing ways that there you are
0: i don't want to talk about his relationship with nikki too much because it's just clearly terrible but <laughs> um he uses a lot of those phrases that kind of are indicative of someone who just accepts that in a relationship it will be kind of awful and you're like no don't, no, don't accept that Like you should be happy with the person that you're with mm. There's a, a classic Pratchett dig at mime artists Which comes back <laughs> in some of the Discworld books
1: They're easy, they're easy targets
0: <laughs> Yeah and They're not going to speak up about it He also says He'd taken the Guardian to keep up with her And got another black mark when he said its children's page read exactly like someone would write If they set out to do a spoof Guardian's children's page <laughs> And I'm like, I think I know what you're getting at, but also I've never read the children's page in The Guardian, so I don't exactly get it. I tried to find one and I couldn't.
1: I assume it was something that probably existed in the 80s on the print version, but we don't get that in Australia. So I think the also thing is he's just saying he's poking fun at left-wingers and feminists and would probably be poking fun at gay people. But, you know, it's just just, that's what he does. But I don't actually think it comes – to me he's actually a very sad figure because he's somebody who doesn't like himself. And so he's not going to be happy. And this poor old Nikki, who actually saw – must have seen something to like in him. He's almost like driving her away because he – Gets a, has a pint of wine and he just can't stop saying nasty things about women in dungarees. You know, it's just like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but that is also a very young man, uh, insecure young man thing to do. And in a way, by taking on O'Dan and taking on O'Dan's quest, he has in fact grown up a bit and will probably not make rude remarks to the, the Scralings. If, if he does, mm-hmm. they'll think he's some amazing prophet. You know, <laughs> so hopefully he'll go off and, and mature and eventually they will meet again in. Book
0: 25. <laughs> mm. Yeah.
1: I know you guys just don't like him, but I just think it's rooted in that really profound self-loathing, and that might be what Terry Pratchett was thinking about with his character.
0: Um, yeah, I think I think you're right.
2: It might sound impossible, but, like, I don't not like – I think he's, like, an unlikable character. As in, like, he's written to be not someone you like, but I mm. – feel for him like isn't oh, yeah. I don't think he's an irredeemable villain and I and I think that I completely agree with you that there's something going on underneath that's causing it so he's a tragic figure in a lot of ways mm-hmm. so him being yeah. not someone who's easy to like doesn't mean that he is written off as a person so to mm-hmm. clarify
1: but it it, it means and I think this is an interesting phrase written off as a person because that's what he does. He writes himself out of the book. wasn't even trying room. to do a pun.
0: <laughs> uh, well done. Well done. See, you do them without even meaning to. That's how, it's teamwork. That's how into it you are. Yeah. Good work. Well, look, we've got some great questions for this episode, some of which about the story itself, some of which just some fun things for us to decide uh, based on the story. Uh, Liz, do you want to take us through those?
2: The first one comes from Danny via Twitter. So, which of your characters would you be happy to see turn up on your doorstep and which would scare the life out of you?
0: (laughs) We did- I should point out, we did get a a few similar questions to this, but we might touch on some of the others. What do you think, Penny? You've written some- you've written probably out of all of us the characters that are most like uh, Erdan the Barbarian. Are any of those ones you'd be happy to see turn up on your doorstep?
1: I tend to write- Female characters who um,
0: – But they are fantasy heroes, some of them at least.
1: Well, they're fantasy and or um, heroines, I guess. Um, mm. I tend to write fairly fallible characters because they're more interesting. I did – I mean, this is a character in a book that I never actually got published. I wanted to show she was a person who wasn't very confident and then by the end of the book I wanted to show she was confident. So I had her biting her fingernails and then by the end of the book she – was no longer biting her fingernails. This is a subtle sign that she had gained. (laughs) And I bit my fingernails as an author and I have stopped and I gave that to her and I've never bitten them since my fingernails are pristine. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So I'd quite like her to turn up. We could, we could trade fingernail hints.
0: (laughs) But (laughs) you, what you've just told us though, Penny, is that you have done in real life a version of what happens in this story.
1: And a much smaller thing, and I think that's the uh, psychological power of writing in a way, that you can fix wrongs, even if only in your head. But that was an, was an issue to me. It's, I, I wish I could, I need to now, obviously, now create a character who makes a million dollars, but <laughs> becomes extremely <laughs> wealthy. <laughs> yes. And see if that works, but I suspect it wouldn't. <laughs> what about yourselves? It's hard to describe the kind of fiction
2: that I write. I was, I was trying to think of a good answer. I think in terms of one that I'd be happy to see at, turn up on my doorstep, there's one character I wrote in a story called The Voyeur who comes from a family where they have the ability to visit the death days of anyone they're related to. So if you died on the 1st of December, um, your descendants will be able to go and see you on every 1st December of your life. Uh, I can't remember the exact internal logic, but it's something like that. And this woman gets completely obsessed with tracking her mother, who died when she was young, through everyone's death days. So she doesn't live her own life. She ends up living through everyone else's memories and slowly like her own body sort of wastes away, and she doesn't have any experiences of her own because she's just Mm. living in the past, quite literally. So I think if she turned up on my doorstep, I'd be quite happy because I'm like, Good, you snapped out of it. You're, you're doing something in the real world, like that's progress for you. So I think that would be good character growth for her. So that would make me happy. Um, which one would scare the life out of you? So this is a spoiler for a story I wrote ages ago, which I doubt anyone is going to read at any point. Um, there's one who shows up on her friend's doorstep and murders her. <laughs> um, but never, but gets away with it. Um, it's about um jealousy between friends who've grown up their whole lives, and she knows that this friend has a plan to end her own life on her own terms and has a whole last day planned out of things she wants to do. But because she secretly hates this woman so much, she shows up the day before with a cake that's filled with poison. But because this woman has already set up that she's planning to end her own life, the person who actually murders her gets away with it. So I think I'd be quite scared if that person showed up on my doorstep because... Just one of the worst people I've ever written. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: this is turning yeah. out to be a very dark episode of the podcast. And I do, I would like to say if <laughs> anybody out there is not feeling good about themselves, that's, do <laughs> <laughs> not take any of this seriously. Do contact, reach out to Lifeline or any other places you might need help with. You know,
0: yes, thank you <laughs> yeah. for saying that. I should that. probably I mean, put
2: that warning on all of my fiction. In uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Mm. Um. I think, look, I. <laughs> It's weird because most of the characters I write, I write for performance, um, either live performance or, 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 recorded, usually audio performance. And a lot of them I play myself. So it's, uh, that's a bit of a weird, weird question because I feel like I already am them. Um, I, I mean, I do, someone asked specifically about this, uh, in a slightly different way, but I do like Eddie Jones, uh, the character I play in Night Terrace because he is, he's kind of like me, only younger and dorkier. And with a very different skill set uh, and a bit more accident prone and a bit sillier. So, I kind of- I like him a lot. I feel like he, he's, he's- he feels like a younger brother. And I if he turned up, I think we'd get along quite well. He'd probably mm. also annoy the shit out of me. But I think it would be okay. <laughs> so, I think that feels a bit cheating because it's almost- like, it's like me. Um I do like some of the other characters I've written for the show. Um As for which one would scare the life out of me. I mean, I wrote some pretty awful- villains and and heroes for the video game that I wrote, um, Table of Tales, The Crooked Crown, all of the hero chari- they're not heroes. We never refer to them as heroes in the game. We always use the term scoundrels because that's sort of- it's a little bit- it's, a, it's sort of closer to neutral, but also suggests they're not necessarily nice people. Um, and I think any of them would scare me, but particularly uh, there's one of them who doesn't She doesn't have a name anymore because she had to give it up as part of a sort of dark magical ritual that gave her her powers that also involved like horrible sacrifice and stuff uh, and opening a portal into another dimension.
1: The usual.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, her powers are truly terrifying. And I think she would scare the life out of me for sure. Yeah. So I don't hope she doesn't show up. (laughs)
2: I mean, your answer ties in quite nicely with the next question, which comes from Ian Nichols via Twitter, which is, I guess Ben might not want to swap with Eddie in the time-space continuum of Night Terrace. Is there a character in that series you might want to swap
0: with? Um, no, I reckon I, I, I'd i give it a go. I, I'd like to think I'd get along pretty well with Anastasia, whose house it is, because um, I'd be quite similar to Eddie, but hopefully less <laughs> annoying. <laughs> uh, but also, I'd never get to come home again, and that might be scary, so... Yeah, probably, probably not. I don't know. There's like, there's, there are a lot of characters because it's about a time in space traveling house. They go to a lot of different places. They meet a lot of different people. And mm-hmm. some of those places are quite fun. Like, there's a whole sort of like, uh, steamship in space episode that's kind of like a weird steampunk, uh, sci fi business. I do like that. It's just one of the ones I wrote, but I do kind of like that setting because it's sort of a silly take on steampunk where everything's a bit fun. One of the characters has got a hat with cogs on it, but it actually works to like pour tea and stuff. So that could be fun. And I do like uh, Aubrey, the robot from there. I could I could swap with them. I'd give that a go, but I wouldn't really want to go anywhere. I like it. I like it here. (laughs) How about you two? I mean, you might not—you probably haven't heard Night Terrace, but is there a character you would swap with? Because that's a bit of a different prospect to just them turning up here, isn't it?
2: Where would you, like, who would you recommend for me to swap with, Ben? What do you, What do you reckon? Oh, in Night Terrace, um, if I, if we have to do it, yeah, who would you
0: think is a good swap? Well, I did—I did write a story that was set in like the 1920s, and it's kind of—it's a murder so, mystery, and the character in it is like a a parody of Miss Fisher. But she- this is a massive spoiler for this episode, but I feel like I have to tell you for this to work out. But as it turns out, the reason she can solve all these crimes is that she's done them herself. um, And she's done the research <laughs> into who she can successfully frame for them. So, um, that um you might have fun swapping with her before she's found out, because then you could take over her- you could become the detective. In much the same way as you were talking about people writing more <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, you could mm. become the new Miss Leena Baker Uh and- uh go on to solve a lot of crimes so that could be fun i love that yeah no i'm i'm completely sold
1: well yeah. that's 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 agatha christie isn't it why didn't they ask Ev- yeah. evans you know <laughs> I, I do like the idea of, yes uh you're an excellent detective because you've done the murders i think that's <laughs> so that really works for me
2: <laughs> yeah I think in one of the Jasper Ford books, there's a thing about how Miss Marple is the murderer and that's how she, yeah, she solves all of the St. <laughs> Mary, because a... she wants to stay relevant. So. <laughs> I
1: was thinking, I was thinking of Jasper Ford, but I've only read The Air Affair. But rather than you, uh, novel characters coming to our world, you're going to their world, but you've got to mm. stay below the surface of the novel in order to succeed, which is a, a lovely concern. Well, I think you'd like his other books. There's a lot of fun in there. There's, there's mm. so much time in the world and one day I will get to every book in it, but.
0: Actually, I won't. But. Yeah. <laughs> I like that as a goal. Not enough time.
2: <laughs> yeah, it well, was Well, um, Terry Pratchett said of him, <laughs> I, like he blurbed him one time and it was, I will watch Jasper Ford nervously, which I think
1: is an excellent
2: blurb. <laughs> <laughs> That's like,
0: that is a good blurb.
1: That means behind, I will backstab him behind his back so he never gets as successful as <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: uh,
1: miming a dagger um, being plunged into Jasper Ford's back by it. Urdan the barbarian Actually Urdan would never Plunge a dagger into your back Would he plunge it
0: into your front No no he'd fight you face to face That's right right. Well maybe Or is he the kind of Barbarian hero who's like Look it's a fight Like as many of Pratchett's Characters say If it's a fight to the death There's no rules Mm -hmm. So He'd start
1: at the front Unless yeah, you were the, the she he, dragon of the snow steps or whatever, you know, in which case all yeah. bets are off.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think he, he's not like he wouldn't sneak up on you. That's right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. He'll try for honorable, but if he can't do it, he'll try for winning.
0: I, I think barbarians yeah.
2: are a pragmatic people.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: This actually leads very nicely into the next question as well, which is from Steve Leahy via Twitter. Did Skung stay behind the sofa, getting dustier and hungrier, or was it hung on the
0: wall in the study alongside a stuffed carp caught in Scotland? (laughs) (laughs) I Now, I was thinking about this because my feeling was if Erdan is transformed into someone who would Mm. fit into the real world, I feel like maybe Skung has as well. And when he digs down into the sofa, he doesn't find the sword. He finds, like, a big paper knife (laughs) that goes in a jar at the, you know, on the desk for opening letters, you mm. know.
1: I, I thought he might transform into a pen with which oh. he can write witty yes. remarks to his sign the books for his fans, you know.
0: Very good. Well, he, like and that. he can
1: spill the blood like you know, right. that takes for writing stories. That's right, ink instead of <laughs> blood. The, sword, the pen is mightier than the sword unless you've actually oh, holding a sword and the other person's trying to fight you with a pen, in which case
0: yeah. that is not true. Although I do also like the idea that he is still there, <laughs> not behind the sofa, but maybe like, you know, lost down the cushion and, uh. and people are never comfortable sitting <laughs> on that couch and they don't know why. Or why
2: there's a voice saying, I want to drink your blood coming yeah. <laughs> from behind them. <laughs> mm.
3: um,
2: the next question is from Discord Monthly via Twitter, which just asks, have you seen the short film of it? And then there's a link which um, you can put in the show notes. My answer is no. No. Nope.
0: Yeah, I was I was hoping to get a chance to watch it before we did this episode, and I did not. But it is one of um, a small handful of fan films based on Pratchett's work, and this one's mm-hmm. actually filmed in Czech, is the language that it's in. But there are English subtitles, and I have seen a couple of stills from it. It looks pretty good. Like it's you know it's a fan film. It's an interesting story to pick. But I guess if you've got someone who can convincingly play Erdan the Barbarian, it's
1: then it's go sci-fi for it. props are low. I mean, uh, if you're looking at a budget, it's a good one. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and this is why urban fantasy is so popular yes. for for TV right it's <laughs> it's very cheap to make yeah, compared to high fantasy yeah i have since watched the film Poslednia odmiana and it's good it was written and directed by Ladislav Pleschity in 2013 who's made a really lovely adaptation that keeps a lot of the original story's jokes and lines while making it all feel a bit more real and modern For example, Dogger's relationship with Nikki has deteriorated not just because of his rude truthfulness, but because he's become obsessed with his books and their success, and neglected her for two years in some pretty major ways. And Dogger is also shown to be very successful. He lives in a fancy two-story house surrounded by countryside, has a hugely successful book launch with a packed fan signing and a live TV interview, and after that, his agent who drives a sports car takes him out for a drug and booze filled celebration at a nightclub. Erdan is a bit more Geralt of Rivia than Conan the Barbarian and dies in an alternate version of his final battle with a group of soldiers, rather than under a snowdrift. The cast are all great and there's a lovely chemistry between Marco Igonda as Erdan and Jarek Hybrant as Dogger. Erdan himself comes across as a well-meaning doofus of a hero, especially in a scene where he's laughing in joy at a play before interrupting it to save the leading lady. Erdan's evolution is much more subtle, his transformation is shown as a short scene at the end of a trying on clothes montage, and so is Dogger's fate. But it's clear the filmmakers had a lot of fun and put a lot of love into it, and it's well worth 36 minutes of your time. Yes, it's not that short of a short film check it out
2: so the next question comes from the iu me via twitter which of terry's characters discworld or otherwise would you think would have had the most interesting time if they entered our world how would vimes or rincewind granny the patrician moist
0: etc fare this is mm. a good question isn't it i mean the later the books get the more like our world the discworld becomes in some ways although it's always a bit like our world i feel like the patrician would just slide right in no problems mm. Rincewind would love it because there's no monsters trying to eat him all the time and people would value his skill with languages and wouldn't care that he can't do any magic (laughs) because there isn't any. And when you think about Rincewind in the very first couple of books, he's the character and later on this sort of torch passes to Ponder Stevens, but he's the character who like wishes that the world made a bit more logical sense rather than ran on magic. So, again, I think, you know, if that aspect of his personality is still there somewhere, he would love being in our real world. So I think those two, at least, would do great.
2: I love watching Nanny do tourism. So, I feel like Nanny Og in our world, just marveling at everything or criticizing everything would be interesting for me, certainly. Probably interesting for Granny, who would be dragged along no matter what.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Moist um, von Lipwig would do great in our world. There's no shortage of opportunities mm. for an enterprising ex-con man. So, I think, I think a lot of them would do just fine. Mm. Um, Penny, you, I know you haven't read a lot of Pratchett. Did you recall any of the characters from his stories that you think might do all right?
1: Well, I, I enjoy um, – I've forgotten the name of the postman. I think he'd oh, do, that's my <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. He would love to come in and um, see a well-run post office, though. Who knows? <laughs> um, uh, the Death. I think the character of Death is uh, a good one, and he would certainly t- – mm. he's already in both worlds. Um, so, <laughs> you know.
0: I think he'd see it. Yeah, he'd see a real opportunity to do some good here. I guess he would be sort of like, let's make things easier and nicer at that mm, end. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But,
1: but yes, the, the other than that, my favorite one is actually Good Omens, which is, um, they're already here. <laughs>
0: they, they kind of are, right? And they, they are having <laughs> yeah. an interesting time. <laughs> That's right. <they're laughs> yes, they are.
1: Off to that little pub <laughs> in Jerusalem.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: And I did love the recent T V series. I thought that was a wonderful adaptation and uh well, They're making more, aren't they?
0: Yes, season yeah, two coming out yeah. later this year based on an idea that Terry and Neil had for a sequel that they didn't end up writing. So Yeah.
1: And Neil gets to direct it this time and thus, you know, <laughs> he'll be happy.
3: <laughs> he won't
1: have to be reverential to Neil's bits.
3: <laughs> yes.
1: I so I do remember reading the introduction to Good Omens and uh they talked about how they used to fax each other the things they'd done overnight. And I just went, oh, (laughs) facts. The young people won't know what they're talking about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They used to mail floppy disks through the post as well.
2: I was actually at Telstra store the other day and I needed a form sent and I wanted to see if it was possible to fax it because I know some places still have it. And I was on the phone to the person and I was like, oh, maybe do you still have a fax machine? And the woman at Telstra store was like, I mean, they don't have one. I was like, okay, (laughs) all right.
0: When I worked at the Medical Practitioners Board of Victoria, the standard for communicating between the medical boards of the various states was still faxing things. And that was not that, that long like That was not that long ago. It is no longer the case, I can confirm.
2: So our next question came from Lovely Rose via Twitter. Um, just to say, Rose sent us a brilliant question, but it definitely involves a spoiler for a certain book that we don't want to spoil. So we'll refrain from answering it for now, but we just want to say thank you, Rose.
0: Yes. And don't look that question up on Twitter if you don't want to get spoiled either. It is subtle. And I know you didn't mean it, Rose, but we know that a lot of people listening to the show do not want to get spoiled for that book. Even though you didn't mention which one it was, people can probably guess. So don't, don't look it up.
2: But we appreciate you asking.
0: <laughs> yes. It was a great question. I will try and remember it for when we get up to that book because I want to answer the question.
2: All right. So, um, Bell has asked by Discord some questions that we've covered the ground on already, but. Which of Pratchett's non-Discworld characters would you most like to have stay with you?
0: Oh. Would you like anyone from Good Omens to come and stay with you, Penny?
1: I just think they're followed by chaos and disaster. So you just <laughs> open the door, have them run through, then open the back door, they can go out in the backyard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you just bet their escape and you don't want to get any <laughs> right, further advice. in right, that. That's
1: right. Before they start wrecking the furniture. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's great.
1: I did like that order of nuns. I thought the evil nuns were lovely, and I, they could be, come round any time and have a cup of tea.
0: <laughs> oh, that, what is it? The chattering the, uh, order of Beryl? That's right. Something yes, like they that. had to
1: keep talking.
0: <laughs> yes, they'd be good value. You'd Get a lot of good conversation out of them. That's right.
1: And then again, you show them the door. <laughs>
0: This is a good question. The books that I love, the non-discord ones the most, are they not characters I necessarily want to come and stay with me? I know because I don't like them, mm. but because it would just be sort of weird. Cause mm. I like, I like a lot of his like children characters and I'm like, that's not, <laughs> I don't need them to come and stay with me. I'm going to come and do one of my workshops. That'd be cool. <laughs> hang out for a bit. I do like the gnomes. So I think I would love to hang out with some of them. Maybe masculine and grimmer, but maybe, maybe more so like Angelo and Gerda. In fact, if Gerda's still travelling the world trying to find other gnomes, if you haven't read those books or listened to our episodes, this is like a race of tiny people who are, you know, very, very small, who live in the cracks of the human world. I would love, yeah, Gerda could come and say hi. I could help him on his journey. He could stay here for a while. He'd be safe. What about you, Liz?
2: Well, I mean, the unadulterated cat pretty much already lives in my house. We've got some of those characters, <laughs> but... um Likewise. I think... I don't want anyone in my house, but if I was going to choose someone from a non Discord book, perhaps for purely, like, curiosity reasons, I'd be interested in having the ghosts, sort of the dead, from Johnny and the Dead, come to stay, because they're from mm-hmm. different eras, they've got interesting stories to tell, and I feel like that would be just a great opportunity to learn about different eras from first-hand experience, so I would quite enjoy that, I think, so hang out with a few ghosts in the spare room that could be fun final questions come from sven via discord what would your role-playing game character say to your living situation not judging
0: i like this idea because it does feel like you know a lot of us won't have written the sort of fantasy character that Erdan represents but we have played role-playing games and we've made a character like this whether in a pen and paper game on the tabletop or in a video game if they turned up, what would they think about it? Would, would they be impressed with the fridge or what? <laughs> it's tricky when you've had a lot of characters. Penny, you've probably had dozens, if not hundreds of, of different characters over the years.
1: Talking about the ones I've played most recently, uh, through, this is a terrible idea, people, don't do it. Through, because we had to play role playing games by Zoom uh, during the lockdown. Um, mm. We actually, Mark took us through Curse of Strahd, which is a very dark, vampiric role-playing game. Yes,
0: it is. My, my partner was running me through that as well, actually.
1: Not not a good idea. But so very shortly on, I'm going to use a rude word here, very shortly on, my character started calling Stride arsehole Stride, and then the whole thing went downhill very quickly. But <laughs> it was, I think, because she was trapped in a horrible, dark, gothic world and you couldn't escape and this stupid vampire overlord kept taunting you. She'd turn up at our place and go, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Running water.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Where's the garlic?
0: <laughs> <You know. laughs> She'd keep- it.
1: That's right. Storekeepers who like taking your money and it's the prices aren't grossly inflated, though in fact obviously toilet paper would have been difficult. Yes, so that's it. But then, of course, the, <laughs> other, the other characters tend to play tend to be in the 1920s because that's Call of Cthulhu um, and uh, – mm. I think they'd be a bit worried they were trapped in some mygo hell but there you are brain brain in a metal canister gone to Mars because <laughs> what's the line science magic science is magic somebody who doesn't understand science would see it as magic so yes
0: are. yes sufficiently advanced science yeah. is indistinguishable from magic we've talked about this yeah. before on the podcast yeah. cuz it come up in uh, in science and discord books but yes I get what you mean
3: that's right.
0: I, I keep thinking the last, um, not because I'm, I'm running games more these days than I'm playing, but the last Dungeons and Dragons game that I played, I played a very anxious sorcerer who wasn't entirely in control of his powers and was very worried that they might go off and uh-huh. incinerate people. And I think if he, if he came here, I think he'd feel quite comfortable because he's, he's always worried he, when he got these powers through this sort of magical storm kind of thing, he got sucked into another world and he can't ever go home. And so, I think if he got here, he'd at least feel like he was safe because it's like a stable, reasonably sedate kind of world for the most part. I mean, obviously, there's some things (laughs) going wrong, but there's no, you know, dragons coming to eat him or weird creatures. There's none of that. So, I think he'd be okay with that. Well, as to what he think of my living situation, look, I think he'd be all right with it.
1: There, there, there is, there is a line that if we went back in time, even a hundred, a hundred years ago, we would die because the world is full of microbes against which we have no defense. We would die very mm. shortly. Um, mm. and there are numbers, horrible ways to die in historical reality that we don't have now. And that most fantasy worlds, most fantasy worlds, you might have some killer plague wandering around, but you won't have dysentery and cholera. And, um, I mean, the more Christian mm. realistic worlds you will, but we're not really.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's always, I mean, it's that idea of magical medieval Europe, right? Yeah. It's, it's like medieval Europe, but with all of the really nasty parts filed off. Yeah.
1: Even Melbourne, where I live, in the gold rush, had a cesspool in Little Collins Street so large that, you know, the, it was a, basically a 60-foot wide, six-foot deep pool of, I'm going to say, filth. Is that where they held... Music festivals? <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> in the oh, no. We, we airbrush that out of history, um, uh, but that's why we enjoy fantasy. <laughs> and we also forgot to remember the reason they invented penicillin was because people would die of infections, and the bloke that they first tried it on was dying of an infection that he got when he was pruning his roses and he pricked his finger.
3: Hmm.
1: And that became an in- unstoppable infection, and he was dying when he took on this dangerous radical cure. And they cured him, but they couldn't refine enough penicillin. They would actually get his mm. urine and race it back to the lab and refine it to get the penicillin out and then rush it back and re-inject it into him. They called it the pea patrol. They were doing it on bicycles. Oh, <laughs> you yes. know, so wow. it's not modern science, oh, but so it worked. Amazing. But unfortunately he died anyway. They couldn't, he relapsed and died because they couldn't get enough penicillin into him with the mm. very primitive apparatus that they had. We forget wow. that. that. That was in the 1940s, 1950s.
0: I've never heard that part of the story. That's amazing. We're
1: same. Look it up, people. <laughs> I will. I will
0: look it up. That's amazing. I'm writing it down right now.
3: <laughs>
1: Here's the brave men and women.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs>
2: Um, I don't have a great answer for the role-playing game character because I feel terrible confessing this to you both. I haven't played a role-playing game in years. I did when I first moved to Melbourne and I had a friend who very kindly set up a one-day Dungeons & Dragons game for us where she was a dungeon master and she wrote characters out all for us in advance so that we could play through it. And I don't remember anything about my character at all. What I do remember, and Ben has possibly heard this story before, is that another friend of mine was assigned a character who, as, a, as just a bit of, like, colour, um, was assigned that their character loved to loom things. And for some reason we all latched onto this idea that her character could loom. So we would get to a chasm or something and we're like, Sean, can you quickly, like, loom us a bridge? And our dungeon master was like... She, there's not one of her – would have to sit here in real time while she looms a bridge. And so I wonder if that character who could loom things came to our world. I feel like she'd have a nice time because she'd be able to loom things on her own terms and wouldn't be asked to do ridiculous looming like a bridge. So, yeah, I think that she would be quite happy. Yeah.
1: She could sit down and get her Bayo tapestry on is what, you know, that would be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. When, when you said – when you said loom, I literally thought you meant somebody who would blow this. That's oh, yeah. a visual gag everywhere. <laughs> That's, yeah.
2: Yeah. Very rational.
1: <laughs> yes, somebody would come and just stand over you, you know, so you could just imagine some gnome was interacting with you and she'd just walk and stand over them.
2: <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing too. So our final question from Sven is, bonus question, if you were to imagine having a best-selling book series, A, which genre? B, what main protagonist, and C, what mode of death of said main protagonists. Oh, wow. (laughs) I feel like if I knew this, I would have a best-selling book series.
0: (laughs) It's more fun to imagine, I expect, if you're not a writer. (laughs) Um, Mm.
1: No, I've I've got it all damn patched, but you guys first. Oh, Oh.
0: Well, mine would be definitely a comedy series of some description, and I think I would probably like to try- I've been thinking about this a bit recently. I I, I like the idea of a, of like a magical post-apocalypse. And I don't know if this is the one that I would want to be a best-selling series, but I think that could be fun. Because if it's magical, you know, it can be an allegory for things in the real world, but has quite a distance from them. But also, you know, you can have all this weird stuff happening a little bit, you know, like what's that role-playing game? Gamma World, like that kind of level of weirdness or sort of fallout, but with magical stuff happening. And you could meet all these different characters. So, that would be the genre I've been thinking about doing this as in another medium, and I, the main character I imagined was a wizard who didn't cause the apocalypse, but had something to do with it. So, feels guilty, and he's sort of roaming the earth trying to help people where he can. But he's a little bit rinse windy. He's not necessarily the greatest wizard, but he can actually do magic. So, that, that's probably one of the protagonists, and then he'd have, like, a crew that go with him. I don't know who they'd be. How would he die at the end? Maybe he'd die by reversing the magical apocalypse, and then he would like sort of explode. I don't know that sounds like a, that sounds like a funny it would have to be a funny wa- I mean this is as we've discussed in this episode, it's difficult to do a funny death that's okay, but in a fantasy world, you can kind of get away with it right because you don't have to obey the normal rules of physics, and we know that there's not the same kind of ramifications, although in a novel. You do kind of get into the characters' heads and know them quite well. So it's a kind of a medium where it's difficult to kill characters off and not feel bad about it. So I guess you would feel bad. But yeah, you probably done in some sort of spectacular magical explosion, I reckon. That's my imaginary novel series.
2: All right. Well, I'm keen to read it when you write it. But, um,
0: <laughs> from. It probably won't be novels.
2: For me, I guess. I'm not sure. Um, I'm just going to go with what I would absolutely love to read and think I would enjoy writing. Um, I love reading crime, but not like hardcore gritty crime where you sit around drinking a whiskey and are angry and your wife has left you. not that kind of crime. So like, cozy more crime. like Agatha Christie, light, like, yeah, cozy crime, but maybe with a time traveling protagonist. So you can solve crimes from different eras. Cause that could be quite fun. Mode of death. Um, I don't know. For this one, it could be old age because they could just like time travel until like they're a Miss Marple, and then eventually like close their last case and then they're done. I think that would because it's cozy crime. I, I know Agatha Christie hasn't given a nice death to all of her main <laughs> characters, but I think I in this one I would like it to be nice. Just they ran out their career on a high and then die of old age, having solved a lot of crimes across time, and they've gone back to their favorite era to live out their days.
1: And I think it's very difficult to kill off the, the protagonist of your best-selling series because, as mm. Conan Doyle and and <laughs> Kevin Dogger have discovered, yes, absolutely. there is no good way to do it. Um, no. Like like yourself, I'm a comp- I'm a real big proponent of cozy crime. Uh, Amelia Peabody is, of course, my go-to 1920s Egyptologist who solves crime and. Um, Wraps the bad guys on the knuckles with their umbrella. My other favourite fictional detective is Judge D, who is a Dutch diplomat in China. Uh, read the Chinese detective novels of the Han and Tang period, and decided he loved them, but there was too much magic shit in them. Gods kept turning up, and animals could talk. <laughs> so he invented Judge D, the righteous Confucius judge, who's he strokes his beard, looks at you thoughtfully, has a cup of tea, and then sol you know goes out and solves the crime. <laughs> With his <clears throat> gang of con- – they're called the the heroes of the Greenwood, the kind of Robin Hood, the kind of – the outlaws of the marsh. So I, right. if I could get some kind of cross, <laughs> I think that would be wonderful. But really I'd probably want a 1920s protagonist who's a detective who fights, unfortunately, Cthulhu and all his minions, and there is no good way mm. to end that. That is madness nice. and death, unfortunately. <laughs> but what I'd mm. probably do is kill off all of companions so that she dies mad. I mean, but, you know, she's in a, the, the the ultimate – The ultimate uh, Lovecraftian ending is that the the narrator starts saying, I wish I hadn't seen all this stuff. I'm going Mm. mad or they're going to get me. So I think that's how you'd finish it. She's not dead, but she knows it's only a matter of time and she hopes to Mm. die before, you know, they come and get her. However, the only actual comedy I know that has managed to carry off death is actually The Good Place, which, of course, does. Mm. After everybody's already dead, thus solving all those naughty plot (laughs) issues around, you know.
0: And they all <laughs> die in kind of ridiculous ways as well.
1: That's right, but hard to put in fiction to an outraged fan. There's a lovely—I don't know—you probably haven't mm. seen it. There's a lovely Edwardian cartoon of a small boy sitting in bed reading his Sherlock Holmes short stories, and it's titled "The Death of Sherlock Holmes." And the small boy, assuming they're going visual joke, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: yeah. it's.
1: It's the face of a little boy who just sees his hero plunge to his death. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh,
0: yeah, pretty intense.
1: You can't, even if it's a fictional character, if you love that character, it is so hard. And it's probably why we're better not to kill them off, frankly.
0: Mm. You know. Yeah, I can't. I don't think any of my favourite characters have been killed off. Well, unless you count the Doctor, who is about to die for, I think, at least the 14th time. And would you be devastated if they were? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you kind of want. It's interesting because you don't. The story doesn't have to end until you choose it to, mm. which makes it a bit of a, a quandary. But um, yeah, it's interesting. It's I think interesting we question. like. I, I think, think we have... like to
1: think that our favorite characters are still living somewhere in our heads. You know mm. that they're off. Mister Darcy and Miss Bennet are off, and uh, Moist is off. You know yeah. um, that they're, they're all <laughs> off. They're still doing their thing, even if only they're doing it is over and over, and that's why it's so bad.
0: Actually, and that's my question, actually, about Kevin, the Bard singer. Do we think his stories are a hit? Do you think he goes on a lot of adventures?
1: I think Erdun is successful at everything he does. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I think.
0: Yeah. Trucks of cash.
1: I don't think he'll be staying in that semi-detached for long. <laughs> and I, no. oh, except he's got to go and hang off the end of a, a whaling ship, obviously, but he can do yeah. that and then write the novels in his spare time.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah. Do you think, do you think he's going to make... I mean, this is the other thing I was wondering is, you know, is Kevin going to become a better person as this hero? Like, if Erdan's writing the books, he's clearly not going to write them in the vein of the books he was in. He's going to write them in a bit more of a, you know, a write-on, let's-do-the-right-thing kind of frame. So, is Kevin going to become this kind of, like, environmental fantasy hero?
2: (laughs) Well, his better half influencing him rather than the other way
1: around. So, maybe that is, like, progress for him.
0: Yeah. The scales have gone the other way. I kind of like that idea. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's also the idea mm. of what is a character. A lot of successful literary creations are in some way the 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 ego, the super ego, like Holmes and Watson. I'm using that example. It's the ego and the, the super ego. You know, it's it's like these creations. And you know, Conan Doyle is kind of they're a trio. Um They're they're parts of our personality that we splinter off into our creations. So I do think yeah. you know if a better person is writing the book, then the, the character will be better too. So. um
3: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, And in a way, that's forecasting fan fiction. You're writing on the creation of a shared world, which is key to things like role-playing, and also actually the Lovecraft mythos, bless it. Lovecraft's one of the first writers who quite willingly shared his world and said other people could build on it. Yeah, Perhaps by sharing that world, it would become even more realistic. And one day, in fact, I mean, Tolkien believed this. He believed that in some way, middle, if you write something realistically enough, it becomes real. So that's why he invented the languages, and uh, also because he was a linguist and he loved that kind of stuff. And he used to get awfully annoyed at C.S. Lewis who would just throw all aspects of mythology in, centaurs, sure, you know, everything, everything can go in there, Christianity, yeah, put it all in. And that's the – if you it's that argument that if you believe something and create it intensely enough and completely enough, then it is real.
2: There's that great um, meme I think maybe that goes around. It's like J.R. Tolkien – Don't ask me if this is about World War II. It's what you want it to be about. And then (laughs) C.S. Lewis, if you don't understand that Aslan is Jesus, I will go absolutely insane.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a great series of little uh, video sketches by a comedian named Eleanor Morton, who does these little vignettes where she's playing both... C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, and they're arguing about various things. There's one, one of the best ones I saw recently was that Tolkien bets C.S. Lewis he can come up with a stupider character name than C.S. Lewis can, and they go back and forth. Uh, it's very funny. Um, we'll have to chuck a link to those in the episode notes. She's very good. And she's been on an episode of uh, Desert Island Discworld as well. So she, mm. you can listen to her talking about Pratchett if you want. I'll stick that in the episode notes as well. But I think that kind of brings us to the end of this discussion. Penny, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again. We had such a good time last time. We absolutely wanted to have you back again. What's what's in the pipeline for you that's coming out next?
1: Well, I've got something coming out, but who knows when, thanks to delays and so on. But we, we have been mm-hmm. working on a Call of Cthulhu gaslight campaign, which we will – it is currently being edited, and hopefully it will come out shortly. And uh, Well, not shortly.
2: No. Possibly next year. <laughs>
1: At some point. Yeah,
2: in good time. In
1: good time. So, yeah, that's. I was able to put a lot of my love for all these wonderful Edwardian ghost stories into that and worked with a team of scenario writers who just each took a different idea from a different writer and uh, ran with it. The guy who took the Benson brothers just came up with a beautiful, um, the most horrific house in the most horrific Edwardian version of London that you could possibly imagine. So uh, oh, it'll wow. be, I think it will be great when it comes out.
0: Okay, that sounds amazing. Are you allowed to say what it's called so people know what to look out for?
1: We had a working name, and I just don't think I'd better say anything because mm. it's. Um,
0: sure.
1: I don't know what name they're actually going to call it.
0: We'll watch out for a new collection. Or is, it a, is, it a, is it a single campaign or is it a it's collection a campaign sort of smaller? Gaslight,
1: but they've also got to get out the Gaslight, the reissue the Gaslight um, source book.
0: Which is for Victorian England. Yes, In the
1: yes, like, mythos. Yes, gas- so that's why we call a it, gaslight. It's like a horrific version of Victorian London with the yeah. mythos at ever ready to reach out a tentacle and yank you into
0: the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this story, Final Reward. We're recording this all a bit out of order this time of year. It's just been a weird kind of time for scheduling, so I- I'm a bit all over the place. But we are going to be coming back next month Hmm. Where we'll be talking about Liz, the third in a series of books we've been talking about. Uh, it's the, <laughs> the science, science of Discord, Discord three, 3
2: Darwin to watch.
0: Yeah. Which, uh, it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. If you've got questions about that, please send them in. The hashtag for that book, if you're sending questions on social media is pratchat59. If you are emailing them to us, you can email them to us at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. Dot com, And while you're thinking of questions, the episode after that, our 60th episode, if you'll believe such a thing is possible, we are doing another kind of general questions episode. We did this for episode 30. We're doing it again for episode 60. So if you have any Pratchett question that you want to ask us... If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, whether that's just a general question about his work, a question about something we haven't covered, a question about a book we have talked about previously, but you didn't get to send in the question back then, questions about where to start with the books, although that is something that we covered in our previous episode. So maybe listen to that first. Uh, But if you've got any questions like that, now's your chance. We'll take whatever questions you want. And if you've got questions you want to ask us just about our work and stuff that we do that's not even Pratchett related, we'll probably answer those as well. So send them on in. We'd love to hear them. And I think, look, I'm going to ask a couple of questions of you. What would you like us to be talking about on this podcast? that we have not yet talked about. Is there something you want us to do? We've had lots of ideas, things like, should we do episodes about other authors that you might enjoy? Should we do episodes about genre conventions or things that are clearly influences on Pratchett? Is there something you want us to be doing that we aren't currently doing? Let us know. We would love to know that. Liz, did you have any questions you want to specifically ask?
2: I would actually be quite curious, like, what people's favorite episodes that we've done are and why, like, what stands out about them so that we can keep
0: doing it. That's a, uh, that's a good one. So, uh, send us in your questions, send us in your answers, and we will give the appropriate questions or answers to them. That's a terrible <laughs> way to describe that. But anyway, we will, we will use them for episode 60. at 60 is the hashtag to use for that if you're going to send those questions via social media. But thank you. Thank you so much. And until next time. Please be careful what you write. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchett as Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Penelope Love. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat58. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make
1: entertainment for your ears like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more visit SplendidChaps.com.